Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and and the government shall be upon his shoulders. We have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has... Man, I am so sorry. For to us, I'm sorry, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, do this. Father, thank you for allowing us to come here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would eliminate all of these distractions that are going on. Lord, that you would allow us to be able to sit at the feet of Jesus and to worship this morning. God, I pray that as David brings the message this morning and as we uh, as we worship you, I pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord, that we would uh, that he would bring truth this morning and that you would speak through him. And that it wouldn't be David's words being said, but that it would be your words, Father. We pray today as as we look in this Advent season, as we long for for Jesus, and and as we get to to be a part of of what Jesus has done and what he is doing, we pray that, that we would glorify you this morning and that we would lift you up. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Why, uh, while we are here, I want to remind us of what we studied last week. Let's, let's do that, okay? Let's rest, all distractions aside, and let's, let's look in, at, at Jesus. Let's sit at his feet, and let's learn from his word. We're going to spend some time in the Old Testament this morning, a little bit different. We've been in John for, for so long, and then even last week in the Gospel of Luke. I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. We began a break from the study of John last week to participate in this season of Advent, as we do every year. And while you're turning there, I thought it would be helpful, since several of you have joined us from the time period from last Christmas to this Christmas, to tell you what Advent is. What do we mean when we say Advent? Because I know for me, 
I didn't hear, I didn't know what Advent was until like later on in my Christmas, I mean my college years. All I knew was Christmas, and so they always said Advent around Christmas, but I didn't really know what that meant. The word Advent comes from a Latin word that literally means coming. Within the church, a season of Advent developed as a Christmas tradition. What we do is we primarily, we look backwards at the first Advent, the first coming of Christ. And we also look forward to his second Advent when he will return. So that's what Advent is for us. Where we are currently at at this stage of redemptive history, we are kind of in between the two, right? So we're able to look back and see the first coming, and we celebrate that. That's what you do on December 25th, Christmas morning. You're celebrating that first Advent, but we we don't want you to forget that there's a second Advent, that there's a second coming. And so while we celebrate the first, we look forward to the second. Basically, at some point in church history, which it really isn't clear when this developed, it was determined that the coming of our Savior and King was too big a thing to only celebrate on one day. So beginning with the fourth Sunday before Christmas, leading up to Christmas, we spend our days in celebration and anticipation. By the way, the ministry of Desiring God has some excellent resources for the Advent season. I uh, recently bought a book. Uh, This is one of two books that I know of that John Piper has put out for the Advent where you can start on December 1st, leading all the way up to Christmas, and you have scripture and reflecting on the words that you read, and he kind of directs your attention This is a good one. It's called The Dawning of Indestructible Joy. I'm one of those guys that likes to put my hands on a book. The good thing is with Desiring God, if you're not, and you like, let's say you're reading the Bible from your phone this morning, and that's the way you do everything, or you have a tablet, or you do everything on your computer, Desiring God, anything by John Piper, is free for you to download. So you don't have to buy the book. You can just download it for free to PDF, and you can see it there. There's also an app that I... I download. I only do this for the Advent season, uh, but it's a it's a devotional app that Desiring God has, and it's called Solid Joys, and uh, you can get that on your phone and pull it up. And it's another way of reading about the Advent, preparing your heart for the first celebration of the first coming. And so, those are some resources that are available to you. I just wanted to make make sure you knew about them. But so the fourth Sunday before Christmas was last Sunday. And so we began our Advent season with a study from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, where we saw the comparison of Mary and Martha. And you've already heard several of us reference kind of like the big takeaway from that that we learned last week was let's not be distracted like Martha was. Martha was distracted in her service to Jesus, running about doing everything she was doing, but she came bitter Because when she looked at her sister, her sister was just sitting there. And Jesus rebuked her, and he said, no, Martha, you don't get it. She chose the good portion. She chose what is necessary, me. And so what we kind of took away from that is we need to be resting right now. Let's not focus on, look, Christmas party. I I had a Christmas party last night. I got another one Monday. I've got a lot of things. December, there's like a deadline for work, and there's a lot of things I need to get done. It's very easy for all of us to get caught up in all of this 
and we get distracted. And sure, we say, well, I'm doing this for Jesus, and December 25th is all about him. But that's not what Advent is. Advent is stopping, resting. Let's take a breath, and let's look to our King. This morning, we get to join in with the centuries of God's people in the anticipation and the longing for the coming of Jesus as we go into the Old Testament. I told Trent yesterday, I have been filled with so much joy this week, more joy than I can remember in my preparation. And I don't know if it has something to do with Blake's gentle reminder for me to rest in this season, or if God just, from His Word, produced this in me. But my prayer all week is that you, all of you who are here this morning, would be filled with that same joy that I got as I studied this passage. I've spent time praying for you that that you would be filled with joy and peace. Joy and peace. Joy in the fulfillment of that first promise, the first coming of Christ, and peace knowing that He will come again. That's what my prayer has been all week for you. And what I understand is that joy and peace are two fruits of the Spirit that are very difficult sometimes to feel and display in this season. We live in dark times. And we don't have to look very far to see the distress and the anguish in the world around us. Natural disasters in the forms of floods and fires. Racial issues. Political climate, protests, power struggles, poverty, slavery, war. And those are just like the big picture issues of the day. But what about the personal ones, right? Dealing with illness, death, financial strain, longing for acceptance and love, loneliness, anxiety, There's so much darkness around us that we can just be swallowed up in it, never to be seen again. And this is the stuff that, that motivates us to just stay in bed. I don't want to get up today. I don't want to face that darkness anymore. I just want to sleep this away and escape it. These are dark days. Such was the case when the prophet Isaiah penned the words that we're going to read and study this morning. Isaiah's world was also filled with chaos, distress, gloom, and anguish. So when we study these words, let us not forget that Isaiah was a real man with real issues. Sometimes I think we, we read the Bible and we just see it as, as ideas that we can ascend to mentally, take away some principles, but we forget the fact that this really happened. So Isaiah was a real man. He had a real wife, and he had real kids. And he too lived in dark times. At the end of chapter 8, the children of God are described as turning away from the the God of the living to search for for fulfillment in the things of the dead, namely the, the mediums and the necromancers, the magicians, those who dealt in the world of the spirits. Isaiah pleads with them to stop. I'm trying to get there. 
He says in, in verse 8, I mean, chapter 8, verse 20, he says, look to the teaching and to the testimony of God. To the teaching, to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. This is not turning upward is like looking to God. Turning upward is, I don't need you. Turning up their noses. And they will look to the earth, but behold, what do they find when they look to the earth? Distress and darkness. The gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Understand, this is typical of God's chosen nation, Israel. When you read the Old Testament, what you see is this constant back and forth relationship where God blesses Israel, Israel rejects God, God curses Israel in a way of disciplining them to draw them back to Himself. Sometimes Israel kind of reacts negatively to that at first, but at some point they return back to God. And then God blesses them. And then they reject Him. God curses them. And it goes back and forth constantly. And let's not be fooled. We do the same thing. God has blessed us tremendously with His promised Son, Jesus Christ, our salvation. He has gifted us the Holy Spirit. And what do we do? Sometimes we quench the Spirit. Sometimes we, we reject what we're feeling, the conviction that we're feeling, and we decide, no, I'm going to go my own way today or in this moment. And what Israel had done here, what we see, is that God cursed them to bring them back to Him. And when they were hungry, what did they do? They became enraged at God. The discipline that they were receiving, they got mad at Him. Why are you doing this to us? And so they started looking to the earth. And this would have been, it would have been perfectly okay for God to say, okay, I'm going to wash my hands of you now. That's it. I have blessed you. You've rejected me. I'm disciplining you. And now you're rejecting the discipline. I'm done. But God's plan doesn't include that outcome. He has grace and mercy in store for them and the rest of man, including us. And Isaiah, who was commissioned as a prophet of God in chapter 6 to be his voice to the people in revealing God's plan, has access to what God will do. So Isaiah, get this picture. Isaiah, a normal man, Real wife, real kids, real issues. Surrounded by this darkness, this chaos that he finds himself in. War, oppression, all of that was real to him. And in that darkness, he looks through time. And he sees the glorious plan of God unfolding before him. Off in the distance, approximately 700 years in the future, he sees a light that pierces through that darkness. A light that, as we've read in John's gospel, darkness has not overcome. The true light that enlightens everyone. The light of the world. Even with all of the gloom, Isaiah saw a hope. The great promise of Christmas. You heard some of that hope presented in the verses Trent read before. We get to those in our, in our study today. Verse 1 says, But there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish. 
And then Isaiah reminds the readers and the hearers of how God has disciplined his people for their turning from him in the past. He references the Assyrian opposition in Zebulun and Naphtali. But how God has always been graciously faithful to them, despite their unfaithfulness. And he has delivered them out of their darkness. In verse 4, Isaiah points us to the way in which God delivered Israel from the oppression of Midian. And if you're not familiar with the story, I want you to go home and I want you to read Judges 6 and 7. It's really cool. Gideon. It's the story of Gideon. Gideon delivered them from Midian. Gideon was the weakest of his clan and the weakest within his own household within that clan. And God calls him to lead an army to fight the Midianites and to relieve this oppression. And Gideon's like, well, are you sure you want me? I'm the least of, I'm in the least, the, the weakest clan in Manasseh and in my own father's household, I'm the weakest. And God says, I'm going to use you. And so Gideon gets his army together. His first act was to destroy the altar of Baal. And so he goes secretly at night, destroys that thing. And they find out who did it. And so the Midianites are, are not happy. And so they get themselves and they get the Amalekites and all the people of the east. And they head out to Manasseh to destroy them. And scripture, I think it's in uh, chapter 7, describes the number of these people that were coming as a swarm of locusts. They were innumerable. Gideon's got his 32,000. 32,000 verses, countless. But they're ready to go. And God tells Gideon, no, you've got too many. You've got too many men. Because I don't want Israel to think that they saved themselves. So tell anyone who is afraid to go home. Gideon does that. 22,000 men go home. Leaves them with 10,000. God says, no, that's still too many. And so he whittles that number down to 300. Gideon and his 300. And remember, we're not talking about like the movie 300, like these big like buff dudes that are warriors. These are, this is Manasseh. They're the weakest. God takes that in true God fashion, right? He takes the weakest thing, and they're victorious because God works in that situation. He's gracious towards them. And so Isaiah is reminding them, hey, remember, even in our darkest days, God has been faithful. God has always given us a hope. So this is the hope that Isaiah sees in verse 5. He talks not just about the the promise of conquering people, but he talks about the, the promise of eternal peace. As you see, the warrior's boots and their bloody garments are no longer necessary. I had a family member once. I, the only person I really try to call out is Natalie. So if anybody would watch this, or if anybody were here, because I do have family here. Um, but I had a family member who jokingly asked for world peace for Christmas. Well, that's, what, that's what's been promised. It has been promised that that will happen. The, the warrior's boots, no longer necessary. The bloody garments, you don't need them anymore. Because one day there will be eternal peace. This is the hope that Isaiah sees, the promise of God that is to be fulfilled in the great 
Christmas promise. In verses 6 and 7 this morning, we're going to see four aspects of that promise. First, we will see the son of promise. Second, we will see the names of promise. And we're going to spend a good portion of our time there because it describes to us who that son is. And then we will see promised peace and the promised king. So first, let's start in chapter 9, verse 6, the first part of that verse. After he talks about that there will be no more need for the warrior's boots and the warrior's garments because they were going to be burned up in the, the fire of the great light, the hope that he sees. He says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Isaiah says, this is the means for This is the means through which God's gracious hope will come to us. This is the reason I can say all this anguish and all this distress will be no more. The reason that there will be no more conflict, there will be no more war, there will be no more oppression. A child. Now that sounds ridiculous, right? More ridiculous than Gideon and 300. At least those were men. But you're telling me that a child is going to bring about this peace. That's why I didn't pass over the details of that story, because I want you to know God's character, what he has done in the past. He's going to use this child. Sometimes what looks like foolishness to us is the work of God so that we would stop looking to ourselves and and look to him. A child will put an end to all this darkness. He is the great light that has come into the world. And notice the way he speaks. He doesn't speak in, in, in future tense. He doesn't say a child will be born. He says a child is born. This is known as the prophetic, prophetic, perfect tense. So when you're reading the prophets, sometimes it's confusing because it's almost like they're speaking as if something was happening right then. Well, what's going on there, like in this case, Isaiah sees this so clearly that though it had not yet occurred within the realm of time, he saw that God had established it and it's as good as done. A child is born. Not just any child. Last week for, for Thanksgiving, Natalie and I, uh, we take, took the whole week off, and we were able to go to Baton Rouge, spend time in Central with my family, stayed with my brother and, and his family. And of course, the highlight for us, anybody that's known me for a while uh, would know that the highlight for me in that trip would be to spend time with my niece and nephew, Cooper and Cambry. Love those kids. You know, Cooper's a little boy who, who's now to that stage where he wants to do whatever daddy's doing. And then whenever Day-Day's around, which is what he calls me, whenever Day-Day's around, he wants to do whatever Day-Day's doing. And so I was making cranberry sauce, and Cooper wants to get on his chair because he wants to help cook. He sees me preparing the turkey, and he's like, I want to help. I want to do that. And, of course, he takes all the credit whenever it's done. Every, he walked around telling everybody, I made that, and I made that, and I made that. And then, of course, Cambry, the baby, we would forsake sleep on our vacation at 6 o'clock in the morning because we would hear her squealing because she was you know, waking up and she's going after it for the day. And now and I are thinking, well, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow in sulfur and have a baby squealing, so let me go spend time with her. And so we would pick her up and we would hold her. And I'm not like a, we all have say like crazy things to kids, right, to babies in particular. Now, I'm not like a coochie-coo kind of a guy. I kind of talk like in a normal voice to them. But like, I, I don't really know what to say. 
So the only thing I can say when I hold Cambry is, hey, girl. <laughs> you look so cute. You're so pretty. Hey. And Cambry's not just any random baby. She's my adorable niece that I would do anything for. But I want you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Hold your place in Isaiah 9. Turn to Luke chapter 2. And I want you to see the reactions that the promised baby, Jesus, received. Luke 2, starting in verse 22. Luke records, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Don't miss out on that. Waiting on the consolation of Israel. That's what Advent is, right? He's waiting. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And that day he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, not coochie coo. Not hey boy, you look so handsome. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He picks up the baby and says, okay, Lord, you can take me now. I've seen it. The Messiah is here. The promised salvation of my nation, Israel, and a light to the Gentiles has come. I don't think any of us have ever said that when we picked up a baby. As cute as they are. This is no ordinary child. And he wasn't the only one that reacted like this. Just go a little bit further down. Go to verse 36. Or if you have to, turn the page. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were doing what? Waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This awesome old lady, I hope some of you ladies turn into her, not the widow part, that would, that's hard. I mean, you saw this lady was married for seven years and then was a widow until she was 84 at this point. But I hope the character of this lady is manifested in some of you. All of you, actually. This old lady, always praying in the temple. She's always there, night and day. And when the promised child gets there, what does she do? She starts telling everyone, he's here. To all of you who have been waiting, he's here. It's this child. This baby. When Isaiah says a child is born, he speaks of the humanity of Christ. 
It's a child. And then he follows that up with a son is given. Here, speaking to the divine gift implied in the fact that it was, he was given, the gift of God, divine in the form of man. And we have seen that theme consistently, right, in John's gospel. We, we know this. Jesus is both God and man. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And any kid would, would hear that and say, Mommy, Daddy, how is Jesus both God and with God? The simplest of terms that John uses, but they're very profound, right? And then in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh. So this eternal Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And just so that you don't forget, John chapter 20. Verse 30 through 31. Why does John write his entire gospel? Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that the man Jesus is the divine Christ. He is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We titled this series Advent, Heaven Touches Earth, because that is what happened. God came down in the form of a baby, a child, born of a virgin. He was an infant, yet infinite. That's the glory of the incarnation of Christ, this birth that we celebrate. Bless you. And then Isaiah says that the government will be upon his child's shoulders, that he will bear the burden and the rule Bear the burden of the rule and reign of this world. And in today's political climate, doesn't that speak to us? That the government will not be upon a party or a party nominee, but it will be upon this child that came, our Christ, our Savior. It will bear, he will bear that burden. And then we get to see the names of promise. So we see that he is the son, the promised son. But then now we can see a little bit more description of who he will be. At the end of verse 6. It says, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now when Isaiah uses that word wonderful, he isn't referring to the fact that Jesus is a good or a great counselor, although he is. That word literally means full of wonder. Referring to the fact that when the promised Christ speaks, he creates awe. He creates wonder because he is full of it. There are many things in this world that fill us with wonder. And each one of us may have our own little thing, right? One of the things I loved about Natalie, I still, I still love this about Natalie, but I just remember when we were dating, when we first started dating, her fascination with the sky. It was one of those like cute little girlfriend things. It was like every time we'd be driving somewhere, we'd be talking, going out on a date or something, and then she would get quiet for a second, and I, sure enough, I'd look over, and she's taking a picture of the sky with her iPhone 1, taking a picture of the sky. Now that we're married, there's no, it's not in quiet. It's like, oh, look, 
And of course, I freak out because I never know what she's talking about when I'm driving. But, but she's fascinated by it. That fills her with wonder. For me, it's mountains. I mean, I am, nothing brings out my inner child more than me being in the mountains. I get giddy, like, like the foreman kids at Christmas kind of giddy. That's, that's what I'm like. Last summer, I took a trip to Colorado with some of my buddies that I grew up with. We drove up there, and this is so ridiculous to say this now, but we, we go through West Texas, which is miserable, and we get to Trinidad, Colorado, where we decided to stop for the night. By the way, it's the sex change capital of the world. Rare fact. Uh, so we get to Trinidad, Colorado, and it's night, and we're checking into the hotel. You can't see anything, and... I get up really early in the morning with my friend Jeff. We get up really early and we go outside because I just want to see the sun coming up over these mountains because to me, that's what they were. And I'm like taking pictures for like 20 minutes, just like walking around the, uh, the parking lot trying to get like the best shots, posting it to Facebook, which was what an idiot because I'm taking pictures of these hills. That's what they were. But I was just so fascinated. I was so excited. And we keep on driving, and we go to Rocky Mountain National Park. You see where I'm going with this. And then I see real mountains. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. Now I've seen something worth taking a photo of, worth the wonder. I've seen something much greater than what I saw before. As part of that trip, we went on a couple of hikes the last hike being the most strenuous, my good old buddy, Mount Ida. 12,889 feet, so it wasn't a 14er, but I don't know if I could do a 14er. Five-mile hike up, five-mile hike down. Total elevation increase of about 2,500 feet. And the first one mile was within the tree line. So any of you who have you know, gone and done this, Uh, You know, you kind of have to prepare for, like, multiple types of weather. Uh, You know, actually, there's a sign. I took a picture of it. There's a sign at Mount Ida that says, beware, pay attention to the weather. Many people have lost their lives, like that kind of stuff. And so I was like, yay, vacation. This is what I'm going to do. But I was wearing a jacket because I know it's going to be cold once I get outside the tree line. So I'm wearing a jacket as I'm hiking the tree line. And if I do anything for five minutes... You know, I've sweated through my shirt before in here, but I sweat. And so I start hiking this tree line, and I'm wearing this jacket, and I'm sweating. And then I get out of the tree line, and I'm exposed to the elements. And I'm walking up this mountainside, and the wind is coming, and it's a cold wind. It's not like a warm wind. And so I'm being hit, beating my body into submission is what it was doing. And now my sweat is being insulated, and I'm freezing. (laughs) So once you get out of the tree line, I've got all this going on, still with about four miles to go. Started out with my friends, but somewhere around the last two hours or so, I I was completely alone. I was the, the bigger one that went. So they all kind of left me. Turns out I thought they were like miles ahead of me. They were only like 15 minutes ahead. But with all the peaks and valleys, I couldn't see them. So I'm all by myself, walking up this mountain, telling myself, keep going. Don't you dare turn back. Don't you dare turn back. 
somewhere along the way, I lose feeling in my right arm. <laughs> the, the wind cutting through this light jacket that I was wearing, and I'm already insulated with all this sweat, <laughs> and I lose feeling, and I think I'm dying. And so I'm not really thinking clearly either, so I, I don't know why I did this, but I don't even know why I'm sharing this. But I bend down, and I pick up a couple rocks, and I put them in my pocket, hold them, hold them with my hand, and I would squeeze them while I'm walking, to make sure I was still alive. My hands would get clammy, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm living. Just keep, keep on going. The last 1.3 miles of the ascent was the toughest. So I'm already going through all this. And I get to that point, and it's very rocky, really rugged. There's actually no trail at that point. You kind of like look at the peak, and you're like, okay, I'm going to go that way. And then you get, like, I'm, into, I'm not pebbles, I mean rocks. And boulders. Sometimes we had to climb over boulders. I want to tell you, never have I ever spent a two-a-days in South Louisiana in August that was more difficult than what I did that day. But then I got to the peak. And when I get to the peak, 360 degrees of nothing but mountain peaks merging with the skyline. That's wonderful, full of wonder. For some of you, it's a sunset on a beach. As you look out at this ocean that seemingly is going on forever, and then the sunset's coming down, and you got the pink and orange hues that creates like that perfect frame for your mental image. Maybe it's you. For others, it's maybe laying out on a cool night, when you can look at the full moon and the stars in the sky, and that's what fills you with wonder. Maybe it's some of you hunters. You go sit in that deer stand, and you're out in nature, and you feel the wind, the coolness, and you see God's creation. You're hearing all of the sounds, and in that moment, you're just like, God is wonderful. Or maybe it's the birth of your children. To know that you had a part in creating that new life. For you mothers to know that I carried this child in my body, which is crazy. As they grew and developed from a single cell of life into that child that you hold. None of that pales in comparison to the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Those are just small shadows of the wonder that he fills us with. Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the creator of all things, the son of God, born of a virgin, an obscure teenage girl named Mary. Jesus Christ, who learned as a child, developed as a child, but was the creator, sustainer, and savior of the entire world. To us, this child is born, and to us, this child is given. Is he not rightly called wonderful? The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, as he looked not only to the, 
the wonder of his incarnation, but also the wonder of his life, said this, I do believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the king of heaven, and yet he was a poor, despised, persecuted, slandered man. But while I believe it, I can never understand it. I bless him for it. I love him for it. I desire to praise his name while immortality endures for his infinite condescension in thus suffering for me. But to understand it, I can never pretend. His name must all his life long be called wonderful. Do you see him as wonderful today? I pray that you do. Because you will, you will find nothing else on this earth. No mountain, no child, no deer, no sunset can provide you with the wonder that Christ offers. He's full of it. Isaiah says he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now many of us are familiar with the role of a counselor. In schools we have guidance counselors who offer us direction, who lend a listening ear from time to time and try to prepare us for, for what's coming after our, our education. Understandably, when you take two sinners and merge them together in a marriage, there's much work sometimes for a marriage counselor. And then for anyone who may battle mental, behavioral, or emotional issues, you are well aware of the role a counselor may play in your life. And as great as any of those individuals may be at their jobs, their evaluation would come back needs improvement when you compare it to the standard of Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor. Just as Satan destroyed the world in his role as counselor to Eve, the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ, will set all things back into order. Now, Jesus is a counselor in a couple of ways. He is counselor with God in that from the beginning, he was involved in our creation. When you look at the creation account, you see, let us make man in our image. The son, eternal son of God, was part of that decision, was part of that process. We know that John 1 states that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He also serves as our high priest, our mediator between us and God. That is why when we pray, we shouldn't pray in the Father's name. We pray to the Father through the name of Christ. We're to be intentional with our words because we are praying to the Father. We have access to Him through our mediator, Jesus Christ. He is the wonderful counselor. He counsels with Christ, with with His Father. Jesus is also a counselor to us. In that he gives us guidance and wisdom in the words that he speaks. It is through Christ that we are able to understand all things past, present, and future. He gives us wisdom. He gives us knowledge. He is the wonderful counselor who offers us great care. And all of us need counseling from time to time. All of us need a wonderful counselor. You can go to him in your day of trouble, in the privacy of your own bedroom, in the intimate setting within your own heart and mind, and you can lay it all out before him. All of the distress, the anxiety, the dilemmas, the weariness of this life, and he will counsel you in his eternal living word. Whatever your trial may be, your mother's father is sick, money is tight, you've got bills coming, addiction has its grip on you. 
you have fear of not being accepted or loved that, that drives your negative behavior. You're anxious about tomorrow and what other trial lays around the corner. Whatever trial you're facing, you can bring it to Jesus. He's a wonderful counselor. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us that we have a God who cares. So cast all of your anxieties upon him. And then in 1 Peter 5.10, Peter tells us that after we have all suffered a little while, the whole time God being right there with us, the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. When we go to this wonderful counselor, we get wisdom for he is wisdom. Colossians 2, 1 Corinthians 1. We get love, for He is God, and God is love, 1 John 4, 8. We get sympathy, because He has been tempted in every way, yet without sin, and has suffered, being able to help us who are being tempted and suffering, Hebrews 2, 18. He's got everything we would look for in a counselor. He's got wisdom. He's got love and care, and He's been there. He understands. Isaiah says that Jesus will be called mighty God. Once again, pointing us to the fact this child of God is divine, come in flesh. And I feel like we got a pretty good understanding on that, so I'm I'm, I'm not going to spend more time on that, but I'm going to focus on the other half of that name, mighty. Jesus is powerful. This is the guy who controls the entire universe. This is the guy who takes water and changes it into the best wine you or I could ever drink. This is the guy who heals the lame. This is the guy who takes five loaves of bread, two fish, feeds 18 to 20,000 people, and still has leftovers. This is the guy who walks on water, who calms the stormy seas, who raises the dead. He is real and he is powerful today. Through him, people who were once dead are now alive. For those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ, that's you. You've experienced his power. This is the great Christmas promise, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, and everlasting father. Now, to be clear, Isaiah is not confusing this promised son of God with the first person of the Godhead. He isn't saying that they are the same. That is a heresy. It's called modalism. And that was uh, denounced by the early church. They are separate persons within the one Godhead. But Isaiah is speaking of the character of Christ towards us. He is fatherly. He provides for us. He sustains us. He protects us. He gives us fatherly love and care that will last how long? Everlasting. Eternally. It is in Christ that we know the Father because we experience fatherly love from Him. After all, Jesus declares in John 10 that He and the Father are one. And in John 14, He says that, if, that whoever has seen Him has seen His Father. Because He is in, his, in the Father and the Father is in Him. Now, I understand that for some of us, thinking of Jesus as fatherly may not sound that great. Because our experience with our earthly father wasn't a good one. Maybe he bailed on you. 
Maybe he abused you. Maybe he didn't provide you with fatherly love and care. Maybe he wasn't dependable. Maybe he was selfish. If that's you, I want you to know that that Christ offers you something greater than what you've experienced. And if you have had a good father, one who was there for you, who, who raised you and protected you and cared for you, I want you to know that what Jesus offers is greater than you've experienced. He will lead you. He will discipline you. He will love you. And he will do that forever. He will never bail. The last name that we see is Prince of Peace. And I think that speaks to us in two ways. And I'm going to use this and go into the next, uh, next section, which talks about the promised peace that will come. But first of all, it would make sense in light of the context that we've already reviewed that Isaiah would be speaking of peace brought to the earth by the promised Messiah, a world peace where there would be no more war, no more conflict. I think it also speaks to the peace that comes to those who believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Peace between God and man. Think about the Christmas carol. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinner reconciled. This is the peace that Christ offers, that we are no longer in opposition to our Father in heaven, that we've been reconciled to him. And then in verse 7, he starts talking about this promised peace. He says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Isaiah offers us more hope as he says that the peaceful rule and reign of this great Christmas promise will have no end. It is true that once Christ returns to rule and reign in the new earth, that he will do, for all, do that for all eternity. There will be no more pain, no more tears, no more, no more war, no more conflict. But it's also true, true that this rule and reign will be established to the ends of the earth. Unending. There will be no more borders in his kingdom. He will rule over all. His rule is infinite in power, in time, and in space. Understand, this would have been incredibly exciting to the nation of Israel when they, when they read that. They know what that means. Because they have gone through centuries of no peace. Still to this day. No peace. This would, have been, this would have created an even deeper longing for the advent, the coming of the Messiah, the promised king. I mean, when you sing the Christmas carol, where's my phone? When you sing the Christmas carol, which is my favorite, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, listen to the words. And I hope, I hope after learning about the history of Israel and that long-awaited, promised Messiah, that when you, when you sing this song, in the future, that you'll be able to reflect back, oh, that's, I'm celebrating the first advent here. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly, lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse, 
Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. You understand the long-awaited wait for Emmanuel, God with us. That's, that's Advent. That's what we're celebrating. We look back and see Israel's long longing for that coming. And we are benefiting from the fact that God fulfilled His promise, that He did send this child, that He did send this son, that He is ransoming those that are captive, that He bought them back. And he will bring peace on the earth. He also says that he will, he talks about the promised king and how this son would be that. He says on the throne of David at the end of verse 7, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this, this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now this promise ties into a previous promise of God, which God promised David that his offspring would reign forever. In 2 Samuel 7, you don't have to turn there. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. Nathan spoke these words from God to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity... I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We see that fulfilled in the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Isaiah wants us to know that Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise. He glorifies his father by revealing his faithfulness. And when he takes his seat on the throne, he will establish and uphold his reign with justice, and righteousness. Not with opposition and tyranny, as we're so used to seeing. When one were to overthrow a kingdom, they would, they would rule and reign with oppression, tyranny. But this king, he will rule with justice and righteousness. He will rule with peace forever. And who can possibly do all of these things that we saw? Isaiah says, 
The Lord can, and the Lord will. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So if you find yourself lost in the darkness of this world, there's a simple application, implication from our text today. Look to Christ. Don't look to the world for answers. The world is full of deadness and darkness. Why would you go to deadness to search for the answers for life? Look to the great Christmas promise, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in the form of a baby, the Son of God, who is full of wonder, who offers you his counsel, who is the mighty God come down to earth, who offers you eternal and perfect fatherly care and who brings you peace and will one day establish peace among all of us for all eternity as he rules forever with justice and righteousness. He invites you to place your trust in him and in him alone, and I invite you to do the same today. And if you want to talk more about that, when we start singing songs and praise to our Savior, this promised one, I'll be in the back and you can come talk to me. My brothers and sisters, let us not turn away from the promised Christ. Centuries of people longed for him patiently waiting and anticipating His coming. We have access to Him now. He's come. Do you find Him full of wonder? Do you take counsel with Him? He offers you wisdom, love, and sympathy. Do you trust in His mighty power or are you trusting in your weakness? Don't rebel against the fatherly love and compassion that he provides you. Embrace his discipline as he corrects your heart and your mind. Lastly, do you feel the peace that he provides? He has made peace between you and his father. That has been done. Do you feel that? I know that's difficult sometimes. We already discussed the difficulties of our day, both in big picture and in, in the terms of our personal issues. I want to encourage you today. The reason we spend so much time looking backwards to that first advent and to seeing the people of Israel as they longed for the the, the coming of Christ, that first advent, the reason we do that is because in that coming, we see the faithfulness of God as we turn and we look ahead to the promise that he will return for us. Because right now, let's be honest, do you feel at peace? Do you see world peace No more war, no more conflict. We have conflict within our own homes, let alone the nations. But we see God's faithfulness in the first coming, and that gives us peace. We're filled with joy here, and then we have peace knowing that he will fulfill his second promise. So where we are, this great Christmas promise is kind of transformed Within, for us within the church. To Isaiah, he saw that initial coming, that glimmer of hope in the distance. And I, I would tell you, if you are in the darkness right now, and that's real, I'll tell you to find that light. Look to Christ, because it's there. There is hope. And you run to that. 
Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And that hope is out there before you. And your faith will be displayed in your walking in faith towards that end. I want to close with the both encouraging and challenging words of Peter. From 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of, the, of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you, you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity.